morning, everybody. Great to be back with all of you, and I'm so thankful to my colleague Liz Wolf uh, who filled in. And it's nice to see you again, Brianna. It is good to have you back in the chair, Robbie. I missed you. It's been too long. Just in time for our incredible show today, our rising panel will get into some of Biden's latest remarks on the economy, and we'll have a special guest break down what's going on with WNBA's Brittany Griner's Russian detention. Plus, we'll get into some new details on the Hunter Biden laptop saga. But first, the Biden administration's best and brightest minds are admitting that the U.S. sanctions against Russia have exacerbated inflation, worsened global food security, and have punished ordinary citizens rather than Putin or his allies. Reports say White House officials originally believed sanctioning food and energy would have a minimal effect on inflation here at home. <laughs> According to Bloomberg, the U.S. government is quietly encouraging agricultural and shipping companies to buy and carry more Russian fertilizer in efforts to drive down food costs. And according to the report, certain industries can do business with Russia as long as they are not sanctioned entities. New reporting from The New York Times reveals that despite these sanctions, Russia saw huge profits from fossil fuels in the first 100 days of its war. And while the EU reduced its imports from Russia, India and the United Arab Emirates made up the losses. Meanwhile, the U.S. is importing refined oil from the Netherlands and India, which most likely contains Russian crude, a loophole for oil to make its way from Russia to the U.S. anyway. So this is a pretty damning uh, indictment of our entire approach. We're getting so based on this New York Times article, it was suggesting that well, even if we're getting less, uh, they're selling less oil the price of it is so much higher because of the shortages caused by doing this embargo that they're making record profits anyway. And it's not it's not really hurting. Uh, it's, it's not hurting the Putin administration, which, you know, probably could have been foreseen. I don't think do they have any economy. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 right, we raised it on the show, the issue that yeah. this wouldn't work. There were so many people making this point, screaming it from the, the rooftops. It is a, a common sense, long-held left position that there's a skepticism about sanctions for exactly this reason. They tend to disproportionately hurt the people, the innocent people living in a country, and very infrequently right. have an effect on leadership. And we saw when the sanctions were first implemented, right, there was all this discussion of how we're going to target all of the oligarchs' yachts and, 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 and keep their money from traveling all over the world. But we're talking about a part of the world where... You know, Ukraine is in, was number one, number four, what, crypto country in the world, one of the most corrupt parts of the world. These oligarchs live all over the place. In London, they were having trouble locking out Russian uh, oligarchs because they own so much of the real estate in the country. I mean, it was never going to be this kind of targeted approach that they said it was going to be. And it's really frustrating that when folks tried to raise that issue right. months ago, it was nothing but Putin's puppet, Putin's puppet, right. Putin's puppet. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, right, you just spelled out the left, uh, opposition to sanctions, but there's a, a libertarian right opposition to sanctions as well, because we hurt a lot of people. We we destroy commerce and exchange the, the, the benefits from trading and engaging in that sort of thing that help everyone are put on hold for these nebulous government purposes that never seem to work. Where is the where's the history of sanctions accomplishing the goals ever? Can we point to those examples? I've had probably a few, but like, you know, embargoing Cuba for, for 50 years or more didn't do a thing to the Castro regime. Um, you know, North Korea toiling in total economic uh, blockade on its own, suffering, miserable, the people there in horrible condition, but <laughs> their, their regime as strong as ever, uh, relatively speaking, within the country. Yeah. So it's just not, it just doesn't work. We have this kind of 
we imagine, or our government imagines, I guess, that we can just bully other governments around by, you know, by tinkering with the levers of the economy. We'll shut this off. We'll turn this down. We'll do this instead. All it does is blow up in our faces. Yeah. And it also really calls us out as hypocrites on the world stage when we say we're going to sanction this country for this reason and then have a very warm and tony relationship with these other countries that are oftentimes acting similarly with respect to human rights abuses and other kind of bad actions going on internationally. This is the subject of my radar uh, later in the show. But it is frustrating when you see exchanges like we talked about last week at the um, Conference in the Americas where uh, Abby Martin asked Anthony Blinken a direct question about why is it that certain countries countries are being you know, excluded from the conference on the basis of their human rights record, while others are others. being accepted even though they've murdered American journalists? Why are we going to certain parts of the world and begging for oil, as Joe Biden plans to do next month, that have a long rap sheet of human rights violations and doing it basically under the pretense of wanting to hurt Russia because of its right. international law violations and, and doing an imperialism? The inconsistency really makes it difficult to understand America as the protector of freedom. Right. It, the way it, it it's inconsistency from week to week, from month yeah. to month, certainly from administration to administration, but even on a more on a on a more confined level, I, I don't. What is the administration trying to do? What is what is Biden thinking? Are they just trying to lose? Like Democrats <laughs> are just going to lose. Like the the fate of the Democratic Party now rests on bringing inflation and the bad economic situation under control to some degree, and they're just not even trying. They're not even trying. They're not even trying. It makes no sense. It's like trying to lose. If you do nothing, you'll lose. <laughs> So this comes as the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has continued to urge top U.S. business leaders and mayors to cease operations uh, with Russia. Just yesterday, Zelensky pl uh, pleaded for more weaponry, saying Ukraine's fight to defend the Donbas against Russia will go down in military history as one of the most brutal battles in Europe and for Europe. But as Western military leaders are prepared to meet in Brussels today and tomorrow, uh, officials are hesitant. Uh, the New York Times reports that American officials are doing a delicate dance of trying to push Ukraine to settle negotiations while being careful to not overstep. Well, which is the right approach. We, we don't we, we don't want to dictate to them what they should do, but we should be like, hey, what you should do <laughs> is uh, come to some kind of peace agreement. And we this has to end because it's impoverishing. It's causing people to starve. We're, we didn't. We didn't sign up for this. We don't want this. The American people do not want I mean, this. They do not want a perpetual proxy war with Russia. I mean, we, being Joe Biden, very much did sign up for right. this. I mean, part of the whole first month of this conflict was getting people to recognize, uh, you know, the Western roots of some of this back in 2014. But now that we're here, look, the, the problem here is that this was all deeply predictable. We're talking about America sending weapons to basically extend a conflict with a nuclear power. The nuclear power part of it was always the end game. What are you going to do to actually empower Ukraine to win this war? Nothing. It's impossible. So it became a proxy war between two nuclear powers, and we all know how that kind of thing ends. There's been 50 years of movies about this kind of a thing. And so we were always going to end up here. We were always going to end up in a place where it was about negotiations and compromise. And the question was how many people were going to die, how many weapons were going to be sent to this part of the world, how much money was going to be spent, how much were Americans going to have to pay the price of the pump before that happened. Joe Biden knew that. And when he announced in his speech that we were going to sanction Russia and that we were going to give military aid, he said explicitly the American people have set up, uh, signed up for this, that um, Democrats and Republicans right. alike believe that this is a righteous cause. Well, well, that's not, right, that, but that's not true. It's They're not saying true. that on behalf of the people. The people never said that. Obviously, right, Russia is the bad guy. The Putin regime is evil. If it collapsed, fine. But 
we can't that that can't be the aim of the conflict because then the conflict will go on forever. And then you know also what happens if the regime does collapse, right? How yeah, many times also, has it collapsed and been replaced job. by something better? Right. It's, it's not our, our job, job to do regime change. No. How many times uh, do we have to do nuclear that? powers or, or anyone, frankly? Right. Yeah. Right. But they, I mean, they they caused this. They started it. They they should not have done that. And we had to respond in some way. But there has to be some consent. If we, you know, if there was vast, what I'm saying is, if there was vast. Uh, consent and agreement among the American people that we want some kind of protracted struggle on behalf of Ukraine. I would probably disagree with that, but I would say, okay. But that's clearly not what the people want. The people are clearly sending a message that they do not want this conflict to go on. It's too ruinous and destructive domestically. We we can't afford it. We don't want to pay it. We're not prepared for it. We, We wanted to get out of this kind of thing. And yet here we are again. Yeah, we used to have to go to Congress to go to war. Right. And now you just do a proxy battle and it's all good. Yeah, I mean that that's what I mean. There's no there's no consent to do it. Yeah. There's no maybe right. Technically the there is because Congress yeah. said sure, sure. Yeah. That's not what the people want. And Republicans are actually realizing that now not not across the party, not the majority of the party, but the sliver of opposition in government to doing this is all coming from Republicans, which is fascinating. He, I, I think that's right. I, you know, interviewed uh, a couple of the most left people in Congress on my show in the course of this. I spoke to Bernie Sanders foreign policy person, Matt Dess, and he was more hawkish perhaps isn't the right word, but more more hawkish than I think most of the left expected. I spoke to Ro Khanna back about a month or six weeks ago and again more recently, and those positions still haven't changed. And that's kind of what the best, the best and the brightest the left has to offer in Congress right now. And so I, I have to concede that point. There isn't a lot of anti-war sentiment coming from the left. Yeah. It's a weird place to be in. Mm. I thought they'd be able to see through it, honestly. Uh, yeah. It's it, the... The sort of D.C., what the blob, we call it, right, the military-industrial complex in, in the government, the defense contracting, all of that seems to, even though we all know this doesn't, we, we have so many examples of this kind of thing not working, that sort of, the, the blob assimilates, you know, the Congress into voting for more war, voting for more weapons, that kind of thing. It takes a, a real clear-eyed opposite you know, philosophical opposition yes. to, to see through that. And I, I know many on the hard, hard left, you know, despite my numerous disagreements with them on lots of policies, on foreign policy are often able to see through it. So yeah. it's interesting that it's not quite so this time. Yeah. Mm. Well, I look forward to hearing what's on your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, in 2018, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated in a premeditated extrajudicial killing at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul by agents of the Saudi government and at the alleged instruction of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He was dismembered and removed from the building in pieces. During his 2020 presidential run, Joe Biden, eager to distinguish himself from Trump, who had downplayed MBS's role in Khashoggi's murder, said this. Mr. Vice President, the CIA has concluded that the leader of Saudi Arabia directed the murder of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The State Department also says the Saudi government is responsible for executing nonviolent offenders and for torture. President Trump has not punished senior Saudi leaders. Would you? Yes, and I said it at the time. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince. 
And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. And I would also, as pointed out, I would end, end the subsidies that we have, end the sale of material to the Saudis, where they're going in and murdering children and they're murdering innocent people. And so they have to be held accountable. But that was then, and this is now. And with high oil prices quickly becoming the defining issue of midterm elections, Biden appears to be reneging on his campaign promise to make Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah and hold it accountable for its human rights abuses. Next month, Biden will head to Saudi Arabia, where, according to CNN, he is expected to engage in some capacity with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. A senior administration official told reporters on Monday, we're now in a place where we feel this will come together in a very constructive way for everyone involved and the president's looking forward to it. I bet. This weekend, Biden told reporters that the trip was unrelated to sticker shock at the pump, that it had nothing to do with the fact that America had been leaning on Saudi-led OPEC plus to increase oil production and bring down prices. But to most observers, the motives are as obvious as the blood on MBS's hands. Biden's defenders are championing the move despite Biden's hypocrisy, saying that Biden is right to kowtow to Saudi Arabia if it means helping democratic political outcomes. At The Atlantic, Andrew Exum argued that the president is right to sacrifice his values in the interest of something we haven't seen much of in the past two decades, realism. Meanwhile, Biden's critics, like Lynn Greenwald, pointed out that The Atlantic ran very different headlines when it was Trump canoodling with Saudi Arabia versus Biden. For Trump, the truth about Jamal Khashoggi is beside the point, wrote Kathy Gilson. David Graham announced that Trump's visit was the end of American lip service to, to human rights. Well, that, what that last title does get right is that Americans' commitment to global human rights has always been little more than lip service. While Biden administration contends to prosecute Julian Assange for telling the truth about Afghanistan and Guantanamo remains open after 20 years, America is still holding out, along with Somalia and South Sudan, as the only countries not to have ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. As journalist Abby Martin pointed out in an exchange with Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the Summit of the Americas just last week, are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, she asked, uh, uh, Israel and, sorry, Saudi Arabia, are your two greatest allies in the Middle East? They have murdered American journalists and there have been actually no repercussions. Why, she asked, is there no accountability? Now, if I'm dragging my feet and answering that rhetorical question, I apologize. It's just so obvious. I sort of don't think you need me to spell it out. The answer is that foreign policy decisions are rarely, if ever, motivated by morals, ethics, or anything that vaguely whiffs of sincere humanitarian concerns. Won't somebody think of the children hand-wringing as little more than an ex-post rationalization for imperialism slash corporate economic interests? As Martin Luther King Jr. observed, Millions of citizens are deeply disturbed that the military-industrial complex too often shapes national policy, but they don't want to be considered unpatriotic. Now, this is an obvious point, but it's important to say that this doesn't mean that humanitarian motives don't exist or that there might not be sincerely held moral imperatives driving the widespread Western support for, say, the war in Ukraine. But the reason America 
gets involved in that conflict, while Saudi Arabia commits ongoing war crimes in Yemen, has everything to do with our energy dependency on Saudi oil and nothing to do with the value of Yemeni or Ukrainian lives. And yet those of us who criticize U.S. involvement in Ukraine because it's a pretext for expanding U.S. hegemony and juicing the military-industrial complex are constantly maligned as indifferent to the suffering of Ukrainians or worse, sympathetic to Putin's invasion. At the start of the conflict, leftists raised concerns that U.S. sanctions on Russia would not have the desired effect on Russian leadership, but that they would hurt Russian citizens and the global community. And now, even Biden officials are, quote, privately expressing concern that rather than dissuade the Kremlin as intended, U.S. sanctions have instead exacerbated inflation, worsened food insecurity, and punished ordinary Russians more than Putin or his allies. Oops. <laughs> I guess I forgive you for calling me Putin's puppet for articulating that very concern on Bad Faith Podcast back in February, but this isn't about I told you so's. This is about having a clear-eyed understanding of what motivates U.S. foreign policy going forward. We were told that Russian oil must be sanctioned because we were defending freedom. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin. But there will be cost as well here in the United States. I said I would level with the American people from the beginning. And when I first spoke to this, I said defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well in the United States. And yet, next month, Biden is going hat in hand to Saudi Arabia, notable defender of freedom, to try to convince them to do what they haven't been willing to do so far, play ball. He's literally going to beg one human rights violator so that he can afford to sanction another human rights violator's oil. What a world we live in. Here's a quick gloss, if you've forgotten, of what Saudi Arabia's human rights violations really have been. Here's a list from Amnesty International. Saudi Arabia uses torture as punishment, denies free speech, discriminates on the basis of religion, and bans human rights organizations entirely from the country. Saudi-led airstrikes on homes, hospitals, and communication towers in Yemen have been characterized as war crimes. Hundreds and thousands have, uh, 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 sorry, hundreds of thousands have died from either direct conflict or hunger in the region. Airstrikes alone have killed almost 24,000 people in Yemen, including 9,000 civilians, according to conservative estimates. Now, comparisons are odious, but if the United States is going to leverage public sympathy, as Biden has done, to justify military action that negatively impacts the American workers' ability to make ends meet, it has to explain why, why Russia's aggression against Ukraine is a basis to leverage American futures, but Yemeni children are not. When the last president showed this level of indifference to stated American values, CNN wrote it up as the Trump doctrine laid bare saying, by letting Saudi Arabia get away with the murder of U.S.-based uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the president sent a message of startling clarity about how the United States will conduct its business in the world. Trump effectively told global despots that if they side with him, Washington will turn a blind, blind eye to actions that infringe traditional U.S. values. Trump made clear that Washington has a price, that principles that generations of Americans have cherished are for sale. To be clear, it's not that that write-up is wrong, it's just too narrow. It should be a bipartisan criticism. Regrettably, oftentimes, an American criticism. In Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, the three major nation-states at war with each other are constantly shifting alliances. And the people were expected to accept old allies as new enemies and vice versa as quickly as the ink the news propaganda was written on dried.
there were no real allegiances. The justification for fighting followed the elite rationale for doing so. And likewise, we're told to root for this military action because justice and freedom, while we ignore untold abuses elsewhere because we don't get anything from doing the right thing. And that's how it will go, at least until the geopolitical context shifts and the people we once sold weapons to become terrorists and sworn enemies and then allies and then enemies and then allies and then enemies, all while the working people of the world hold back. So you might recognize yeah. one of those last images from the end of, uh, I think it's Rocky Three, where it's dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen. Who, you know, how many times do we have to do this? We give weapons to a certain part of the world, often in an effort to fight Russia, often in some kind of Cold War battle for uh, global hegemony. And then we turn around, oopsie daisy, 20, 30 years later and realize those very weapons are being used against our own interests at the time. Yeah, it's one of the most clear-eyed things that Trump ever said. Uh, he said to Bill O'Reilly, it's my favorite Trump quote, Bill says, well, well, Putin's a killer. And Trump says, a lot of killers, Bill. You think we're so innocent? A lot of killers. It was true. It's true. It's a, it's a confusing yeah. and a harsh world out there. There's a lot of bad people. We've done a lot of bad things. We've done a lot of bad things historically. We do yeah. some bad things now still. And, uh, and it's just that we need a consistent approach. Either... We're going to say, you know what, these countries have to work out their own problems and we're going to continue to trade with them because that makes us, that makes the people of America better off, which makes their people better off too. And then hopefully they become more prosperous, more educated about democracy and values like that, and they do something about their tyrannical government. That's one approach. The other approach, the approach we seem to take, is we do that and then occasionally get really mad about some policy and then retaliate wildly against those governments without improving, seeming to have any improvement on those countries yeah. at all. Yeah, when the conflict first started, and I was eager to understand it and having guests on my podcast, I remember asking Matt, Matt Des, uh, Bernie's foreign policy guy, look, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm playing catch up like much of the world was at the time. But can you articulate to me the principle that mm -hmm. justifies our involvement here and not here, 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 and here, and all these other places in the you world can't. where the money could save more lives per dollar, yep. whether it's buying malarial nets yep. or you know, purifying water or actually getting involved in a war or sanctioning Saudi Arabia for its actions in Yemen. And there is none. And sometimes people say, well, Ukraine's sort of NATO adjacent. Right. Like, no, that's the whole but, point and is that, that and that's not. A, But that's a different <laughs> argument, too, right? You can't use the humanitarian argument. You can say, right. look, sorry, it is uh, Ukraine is, yeah. is, uh, is, pr is in close proximity to allied countries of ours, and we have a strategic interest. It, uh, Russia is a more uh, geopolitical, large global rival. We have a just real talk national security interest in stopping them or punishing them or harming them for doing this. You can't make the humanitarian you argument because humanitarian. then we do have to do something about Saudi Arabia, Yemen, all sorts of things that we— that, that we shouldn't, that we, that we can't, that makes no sense to, to pick and choose. So, so similarly, I, I think it is not necessarily wrong to say we should play ball with Saudi Arabia yeah. and overlook these yeah. things so Just that the people of the own... Just don't be about it. Exactly. Right, because when you Absolutely. use the humanitarian excuses, it sets you up to use those excuses to do all kinds of things that Americans might not feel like was a good bargain in the short term, because it's not necessarily about raising the prices at the gas pump. It's about some other kind of corporate right. military industrial interest that is not necessarily aligned with the interests of the American people. Wow, a lot of killers, Bree. <laughs> a lot of killers out there. Well, thank you so much. We'll have more rising in just a minute.
Lizzo is releasing a new version of her song, Girls, after critics blasted the singer over a lyric that they believe is ableist. The lyrics included the word spaz, which is, I guess, considered an ableist slur among the disabled community. That's news to me. It was often used uh, in a derogatory way towards people with cerebral palsy. Really? Again, I had no idea. This is according to The Guardian, uh, an Australian disability advocate who was one of the many people many people upset over the song, supposedly. Don Twitter wrote, hey Lizzo, my disability cerebral palsy is literally classified as a spastic diplasia where spasticity refers to unending painful tightness in my knee and my legs and uh, your song makes me pretty angry and sad. Spaz doesn't mean freaked out or crazy. It's an ableist slur. It's 2022. Do better. Now Lizzo issued a statement and said, quote, I never want to promote derogatory language. As a fat black woman in America, I've had many hurtful words used against me. So I understand the power words can have, whether intentionally or, in my case, unintentionally. I'm proud to say there's a new version of Girls with a lyric change. This is a result of me listening and taking action. Now, go ahead, no, Robbie. No, yeah, I go, see you have ahead. thoughts and feelings. This is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. I, this word is not offensive. Okay, but Rob, you have to acknowledge, I, I also probably would not have noticed this lyric. It wouldn't have stood out to me as offensive. But if people do find it offensive because they are a member of the community that is being targeted, like obviously I'm sure there's a whole lot of pejoratives that I don't know about because I'm not members of various communities and they've never been said to me. I'm part of the learning curve of people who learned, you know, that, you know, there was this, a recent thing about the word uh, Eskimo being used in a, in a, in a show. I mean... Words, you language, can't, you attitudes. Can't Eskimos? Okay, it's I'm, one topic at a time. <laughs> one topic at a time. But the, yeah, the point of the me. matter is, is it if it's no cost to anybody? What, if it's no cost to anybody, and Lizzo wants to change her lyric, right. is it a problem? I mean, she could no. She could do whatever she wants. It's her song. She can rewrite it. I I resist the idea that using the word spaz is offensive is meant with any malice to anyone whatsoever. Well, I don't think it was meant with malice. In 99.99999% of cases. I think that Lizzo said that it wasn't meant with malice. But how do we think we get from a place where terms that we all used to use... I mean, uh, there are comedians who still do bits about how they used to say the F word in reference to gay people and mm -hmm. how they didn't actually mean gay people. It was just what we, you know, everybody called each other gay in the 90s. Well, so some and of now that's we funny. all understand. Uh, Louis C.K.'s uh, routine yeah, about that word is one of the funniest. It's a great comedic set. It's, uh, it's people should check it out as long as you're not. And is, it is the funniness of that the set justification to you. Do, you. do you agree with the underlying premise that you should still be able to, that it's, it's socially acceptable and kind of, polite practice to use the F word or call people gay as an insult. And We're not really arguing whether you should, yeah, you should not, you should not offend people with cruel and harmful and incendiary language. What I'm objecting to is the idea that this word represents cruel and offensive and derogatory and harmful language. It's, that's not what the, the meanings of words change. That is not to my knowledge an offensive word. And so if gets, one person is upset about it, I guess one person well, is no, no, somewhere no. in Australia. It wasn't one person, uh, Robbie. The, the internet was a buzz about was this it? for days. They it always, was, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't no, trust that. Lizzo, they always say, Lizzo, oh, lots of people are offended, and then you find out it was like one person. No, no, no. Lizzo was trending for days on the internet over this story. And when she did issue her statement and changed the lyrics, she was lauded overwhelmingly by people. And I, I, I actually will say this is a good example of someone, of, of a community 
raising an objection that didn't seem to be about just dragging a person. They really did seem to call her in. She responded. They were happy and it got put to bed with the exception of some members of the black community. I think a narrow, narrow much narrower band of people on Twitter who say that using that word in that way is part of African-American vernacular English and that therefore black people should have the right to say it. I don't agree, I agree with that with take. That. Well, allow me to defend black, black people <laughs> and black language, uh, unlike some people sitting in the chair right now. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I don't know. I didn't know. I don't know that. Is that true, that well, that's part of? I, I, not to my knowledge, but but here's, the, I think, the fundamental question, Robbie. Like, I, I share with you the frustration of being told that a word or a phrase that's been commonly used is offensive, that I didn't know that it was offensive. There's something jarring about it, unsettling about it. It's a little embarrassing. It makes me feel defensive and want to mm-hmm. say, no, I can say what I want to say. Of course, I didn't mean any harm by it. But it's also true that we've watched norms change in the course of our lifetimes that we've all accepted. We watched the sports team in the city that we live in change its name recently. And I don't know, maybe you object to that kind of a change, but it does seem kind of bizarre that we all, because of the social sanctioning of it all, use a very open pejorative for Native Americans. Well, like with the changing of the name, then, you know, you survey the people supposedly offended by this, the who fall into the the identity group or the affinity group or whatever, and you, if you find out the vast majority of them are not offended by it, I don't know. Does it actually have to change? But like I don't think it would with this term, probably. But I don't think that's the case. I think that... With this term, I think it, it probably it, is. With the vast majority of people who have, you know physical conditions that are related to spasms or the word spastic or things like that. I don't think it's fair for you to say that they are not on the whole offended by this. I don't have any polling numbers of the disability community, but at least if you take the temperature of the reaction on Twitter, it did seem to be a large volume of people who took offense. So if that's the standard, then it looks like Lizzo did the right thing and everything. There are often examples where the supposedly offended community is not offended. I've seen uh, polling on various things that are uh, have like been called microaggressions, um, and then they survey members of that, like the oh, you're a credit to your race, or oh, where are you from, or oh, that kind of stuff, and find the vast majority of people not offended. Even 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 people who are supposed to be offended by that thing. Are those the same kinds of is there, are those the same kinds of examples as kind of a specific uh, word that describes a community that's also being used to describe a negative trait? I feel like. You know, Some of these words are even being, being I mean, are being used by the communities in a in a affirming way. I mean, that that's true of of the uh, of the gay slur you're talking about, um, right? And members of those communities using them in affirming ways. Do you think that's the same thing as members of outgroups using them in not affirming ways? I don't think it's the same thing. But uh, but how, who, and what, and why gets to use the language and what it means is still being hashed out. And while if I'm allowed to make a contribution to this specific debate over this specific word, spaz, I think it's fine and benign. And a, a small number of people being outraged over it are wrong and should stop. So how do you gel that, Robbie, then with your earlier statement that says if the majority of people in a community affected by that term don't like it, then it should stop I being think if that's, I think that's a, that would be a compelling piece of evidence that we don't need to be, that Lizzo would not need to change the song. I, I would, so I would genuinely like to know, my guess would be, I could be wrong, my guess would be most people suffering from that do not, uh, would not even know that term has, is that, like, is that literally the origin of, I feel like it's 80s yes. or 70s but lingo. Maybe you're spaz. too young for this, Robbie, but when I was young, when I was in like in middle school, people used to call each other spazzes and also make a hand gesture at the same time. They very much did. The same hand gesture that 
Donald Trump used when he was famously making reference or allegedly making reference to a a reporter who had a disability that caused him to, to hold his hand in a position that I will not be recreating right now. But that was definitely, that was definitely part of the epithet. Like that happened. Maybe they weren't doing that by the time you got to middle school. They were not. <laughs> in the early aughts or whenever. They were not. But that, 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 that definitely is something in the zeitgeist. So. Everybody now says, to the extent I've ever heard someone say, you're such a spaz, it means you have like wildly fluctuating behavior or something. I suspect if Not, you go back you and watch Dumb and Dumber and some some early '90s era films, you'll see that this was something that was not so in not so distant history. Part of the Zeitgeist. Now, I think there's an argument. I was talking about this with a friend yesterday, and we were talking about the term, you know, rule of thumb, and how that's technically uh, comes from the idea that you used to be able to beat your wife with anything that's narrower false. than a thumb. Whatever, false. whatever, whatever. It's false. It's true. Who cares? Even if it were true. I would argue that sometimes so much time passes and people are so completely unaware of the origin of statement, uh, origin of terms, that yeah. it's a moot point. I'm not sure that's the case with this particular I think it's term. It's probably the case with this one too. On all things being considered, no harm, no foul. A lot of these things aren't about being allowed to say or not allowed to say. It's about how much respect someone wants to show their audience or the members of their community. And if Lizzo wants to do this, I don't see what well, the issue is. That's fine too. I don't. She can change her song. That doesn't matter. But if someone were to get in trouble or like in a in, a, in an educational setting, in a formal rule where you're not allowed to use this term or there's like recommendations from the administration, mm-hmm. you can't say that, I would say if that. If someone tries to fire someone stupid. from the Washington Post. Yep, right? then, uh, then I'll have a radar on it. So <laughs> let's just, uh, let's wait for that day. Well, we don't have, uh, with Felicia Sanmez is not going to be in a position to do that anymore. All right, we won't, we won't have that discussion for the fourth time, or maybe we will. We like talking about it. More rising after this. I travel the world trying to put things back together. You know, Trump did not leave a very good situation. You think I'm kidding. No matter where I go in the world, whether it was the Inter-American Conference we just had for this this hemisphere, or NATO, or dealing with the ASEAN countries, or the Far East, guess what? They look at me and I say, I say America's back, and they look at me and they say, for how long? This is America. We can do any damn thing we put our minds to. That was President Biden speaking at the AFL-CIO convention yesterday. His enthusiasm comes on the heels of wholesale prices reaching record high, rising to nearly 11% in May, and the majority of economists predicting a recession in 2023, according to a new poll conducted by the Financial Times and the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Amid rising inflation, gas prices, and more, Americans are letting their thoughts be known at the polls. We are a third of the way down from midterms, and voters already backed over 100 GOP candidates. Here to discuss what all of this means for Democrats in November is Hill reporter Julia Manchester and contributor at Newsweek, Pamela Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Good morning. All right, Julia, I'm, I'm curious. As much as I never shy away from a criticism, a criticism of Joe Biden. There is some extent that to which the inflation is caused by these broader supply chain issues that are caused by the global pandemic and are outside of uh, the administration's control. Obviously, there are things that he should do and that we've been advocating for him to do and guests on the show have been advocating for him to do. But to what extent do voters, you think, expect there to be a real sea change if they do, in fact, change the composition of Congress in the fall? You know, I think there is 
definitely an expectation that this could lead to something new. You know, I was down in Virginia's 7th Congressional District, which is represented by Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a very um, vulnerable, moderate Democrat um, running for re-election. I've been talking to a number of Republican candidates, and I've asked them just that question, Brianna. You know, this isn't necessarily 100 percent former President Biden's fault. There are, uh, excuse me, current President Biden's (laughs) fault. There are lots of... um, Too aspirational. It's been a long night, sorry, up till 1 a.m. for the primaries. Um, There are lots of um, factors playing into this uh, right now in terms of inflation and such. But, you know, these candidates and Republican primary voters essentially point to what they say is um, the spending from the Biden administration, the spending from the democratically controlled Congress as contributing to inflation. So, you know, yes, it's definitely a legitimate question, but I think that's what you're hearing from Republican candidates. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of Republican primary voter voters and maybe even independent swing voters going into November, you know, they're frustrated with what's happening right now when they go to the grocery store, fill up their car uh, with gas. So I think they're looking to blame the person at the top and that's the, the Democratic Party right now. So with respect to spending, are our voters saying things like, I wish I hadn't gotten a stimulus check. I wish we hadn't gotten child tax credits. I wish we hadn't been you know, buoyed through the pandemic with a number of programs that pulled very popular as very popular at the time. Or are they pointing to some other spending that's perhaps more abstract or that I'm not thinking of in the moment? No, I think Republican primary voters are just, you know, from what I hear, they say government spending. So, you know, look, maybe it is um, the, you know, what you mentioned. Um, they, they just believe that there needs to be a cutback, really, um, and not as much government intervention. That's what I'm hearing from Republican primary voters. Now, mm-hmm. independent swing voters, obviously Democratic voters, I think you could hear a different story. Denise, what do you think? You know, the Biden administration, Biden himself, I get maybe he's caught between a rock and a hard place where he, he doesn't want to you know, concede that the situation is as dire as it is uh, because it's, you know, his policies. It's he's, he's the one in charge. But then by not doing that, he seems I think he comes across as not uh, as not willing to admit that the situation is as bad as many Americans, not just hard right Republicans, but many mm. Americans overall uh, think that it is. So, does, you know, does he sound the right note when he talks about this thing? I don't think he does. What do you think? I think it reeks of gaslighting to me. I think it reeks of denial and, as you said, uh, denial of responsibility and, and, and hiding his hand. So there are some ways that definitely Americans who could not work because their places of business closed, couldn't function remotely or whatever the case may be, um, needed stimulus during uh, COVID, during the height, let's say, of COVID-19. But there are some ways that the money spent toward businesses was excessive in the extreme and not effective in helping the average American citizen. That is the issue I think that many people have, not to mention the, I think, obscene amounts of money uh, and other things geared toward Ukraine. And some estimates we're thinking that could be upwards of a trillion dollars. Yet we have Americans not able to fill their gas tank because, again, balancing uh, the financial equation for them. And then we have a border crisis with people just flooding into the country and the, the pressures that that places on demand as well as supply. So there are some ways that Biden needs to, to answer the call for the chickens that are coming home to roost for him. And what you see is 
because people want an Americans first agenda. That is what the American government is supposed to be doing. And only the GOP is offering that. Yeah, Denise, I think that you're right, that it might not be the spending, generally speaking, but the idea that the government is willing to spend on folks that aren't them. And so if you disaggregate, and perhaps if Democrats were able to talk more specifically about, okay, this was the spending that we put, this was the money that we put in your pocket to help you through a recession. Here's the money that we're going to help you with going forward. Uh, instead of having all of these instances, that, like the ones you pointed to, spending on Ukraine, spending on big business, the CARES package being the upward biggest upward transfer of American wealth in American history. What about it, like the airline bailout? It, it, I mean, exactly. In Industry-specific bailouts yeah. that you know, don't help, you know, help a very narrow slice of the American people, maybe. But, uh, but it's that, I think it's that kind of spending people yeah. point to and say, what, you know, what was the point of that? Absolutely. We should have just bought the airlines. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a separate debate, I'm sure. But uh, Republicans, of course, people are speculating, are, are likely to have Donald Trump on the ballot again in 2024. The question is, will Democrats have their own version of Trump? Are they going to start this conversation that they had back in 2016, 2017, where people thought the best way forward for Democrats was to match Trump's star power with some star power of their own. Oprah Winfrey is being floated again. She has created a political candidates out of her out of her coterie on her show in the form of Dr. Oz. Do we think that it's likely that she or someone else with a similarly high profile, a public profile and um, a high approval rating might get in the race? Uh, I'll, I'll, throw that to, I'll throw that to you, uh, Denise. Yeah, so I think Democrats are, again, desperate at this point. And, and what is the Democratic Party when they say that all Trump offered is star power? Sure, many of us, most of us, I would say, have grown up with the presence of Donald Trump in music, on TV, his shows, his businesses, and the like. However, Trump did offer more than that to the American populace, which is one of the reasons he was so popular. It's not just that he was a star, it's that he spoke truth to power in a way. It's that he offered and centered the American people. He talked about securing the border, lowering legal and illegal immigration. All of those things are very important. Look, America is a specific country with a specific current people. And we really, the Democrats need to learn, the GOP needs to really lean into taking care of the American people. So if people vote for Oprah because Oprah's Oprah and she's great when it comes to literacy and books and spirituality and all the like, I think that's beautiful, but it's empty. We need politicians who are going to secure America and take care of Americans. Julia, give us a, a reality check here. You know, it, it's, the fa it's one of the favorite things, favorite games pundits play to go, oh, you know, what wild political thing could happen? What if they switch the ticket? What if they change the vice president? What if, you know, something crazy happened? And it almost never does. It would be so, it would be totally unprecedented. No matter how unpopular he is, he's actually still like the leader of the Democratic Party and more popular than a lot of other Democrats and would, you know, would not give up power willingly. It's kind of crazy to think about. So, you know, give us the reality check. Oprah is not coming to the rescue for the Democratic Party. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah. I mean, look, from what we've heard from talking to White House officials, from talking to people in Biden's circle, look, he's planning on still running. Uh, we, you know, and I think there is a legitimate question as to what kind of candidate he would be in the uh, running for a second term, given the really intense political headwinds, the political times we live in, the fact that there doesn't really seem to be 
anyone else or there's a criticism that there doesn't seem to be anyone else to you know take that on in the democratic party be able to unite the progressives and maybe more moderate or establishment republicans and you can make the argument that joe biden hasn't done that but i think you know look like you say robbie he is the leader of the democratic party right now that would lead to absolute political upheaval and i think in an election year especially when democrats are vulnerable and assuming that 2022 goes the way we think it will and not be a great year for Democrats. I think Democrats will want to be united and not having to deal with an inter-party struggle um, as to who will lead it going into a presidential year. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. unbelievable wishful thinking to yeah. think there's going to be anyone other than Biden for Democrats to vote and, for. And what's, what's kind of funny is that I think we do have our, our Trumps. Trump was a Democrat turned Republican billionaire running for office. There are tons of Republicans turned Democrats running for office from Michael Bloomberg to Caruso in LA. So we, we've made our bed and now we're living in that reality. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, good to see you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. WNBA star Brittany Griner will remain detained in Russia for at least a bit longer. Despite being held for 117 days so far, a Russian court determined that she will stay in custody for at least another 18 days. That's according to Russian state media outlet TASS. Russian authorities apprehended Griner at the airport in Moscow this past February after they allegedly found vape cartridges and hashish oil in her possession. Those substances are illegal there. Griner was in Russia to play basketball. She could be staring at 10 years behind bars. Here to discuss Griner's fate is Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania. Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Kimberly, can you help us understand what has taken so long uh, in repatriating uh, Griner and why hasn't there been more kind of political, you know, activity, attention to this or public backlash about this? So I think you have two different points. So Brittany Griner has been in Russian custody for 118 days now. And so I think to put this in perspective, Trevor Reed was held for over two years and Paul Whelan has been in Russian custody for over four years. So in terms of the length of time that she's been in detainment, it's relatively short compared to the two other most high-profile Russian cases. But in many ways, Brittany Griner's case is unique, not only because of who she is. She's an internationally known um, basketball star. She's well-known in Russia. She's played in Russia for well over seven years, but also because of the immense difference in the diplomacy and the atmosphere of what's going on right now. Brittany Griner was arrested about a week before the war in Ukraine, the Russian war in Ukraine was declared. So she was arrested at a point where the United States had already had a kind of skeleton of its diplomatic presence in Russia. And but also the ask what the Russians will want for her will be significantly higher because of her profile, but also because of the diplomatic situation. So kind of keeping that context in mind, when we think about why there hasn't been as much public discussion of her, of her case, particularly from the Biden administration, I think it's because you're trying to weigh the risks of making her more valuable as a political prisoner, but also trying not to change any type of behind the scenes or under the table negotiations that could be going on between the Biden administration and the Putin administrations right now. Hmm. Do you think the, you know, the fact that she was uh, detained and, and arrested uh, 
is, is an example of the Russian government, how they're hand, obviously how they're handling it now has to do with the diplomatic situation. But was there a, oh, yeah, let's grab her because, you know, we're upset at the U.S. anyway? Or, or, or was it a or even there's been some suggestion, right, they could have planted uh, drugs on her. I, I think I saw you on Twitter say that was uh, unlikely in this case because it's or it, it is legitimately uh, difficult. There's a long list of substances that are legal in, in America, not legal in Russia. You know, this is can be a confusing uh, kind of thing. But, you know, maybe talk to us a little bit about what what goes into the decision to, you know, to arrest, detain her and then keep her anyway from the Russian standpoint. So the Russian legal code that Brittany Griner is being held under. So I think I believe it's Article 218. And there are two different parts of this. And so usually people are arrested under the first part, which is equivalent to possession. And thousands of Russian citizens are arrested under this article. And they're usually false arrests. And they are having drugs or drug um, kind of narcotics um, kind of put on them. And these are, you know, mm. not actually the case. But Brittany Griner's charge is much more significant. She's being charged with the equivalent of narcotics trafficking. And mm. so I think the type of charge that's being used against her is definitely politically infused. This could have been a simple possession charge, but that isn't the case because she could have paid the fine and been released. So I think the political situation definitely influences what she's been charged with. I think the fact that she's an American also influenced the way she was charged. But also, I cannot divorce her detainment and the way she was detained. And it took forever to actually find out that she had been arrested and that she had been detained. And that information was released after the war with Ukraine had started. So I can't kind of divorce those. But in many ways, it is possible for an American to travel to a place like Russia and to have substances that are legal in the United States that are, are illegal in Russia, because the law, particularly on vapes and things like that, is very much in flux in Russia. And it's being used, it's kind of staying in flux to be used against Russian citizens. And sometimes foreigners mm. get caught into that. I, I hear you saying that part of the lack of political attention that you might see from, say, the Biden administration, or vocal attention anyway, is because they don't want Brittany Griner to become, you know, a, a pawn that can be used in negotiations where, when time, it's already so sensitive, given the war in Ukraine. But there has been some suggestion from, you know, black Twitter people who are very frustrated about the lack of attention that say this is really about people's disinterest in black women or queer women, and that if this were let's say, LeBron James in Russian custody, everyone will be talking about it, regardless of the dip diplomatic implications, and that you know, the United States would be much more invested in bringing him home quickly. What do you say to people who've been raising those types of criticisms? I think if this was LeBron James, I've also seen a lot of people talking on Twitter about if this was Tom Brady, we probably wouldn't even know that they were being detained <laughs> because yeah. Russia also released Brittany Griner's um, mugshot right so that's kind of like a proof of life picture but mm -hmm. i think the problem is we can't think about how she's being treated in terms of like american understandings the the ask that will be for britney griner will be incredibly high russia uses foreigners particularly americans to get prisoner swaps and prisoner exchanges it's kind of like a way of holding americans hostage to get what russia wants and for many months, Russia has been wanting the release of Victor Bout, who is in American custody in a federal prison. For He's being charged with, he's been convicted of selling arms to terrorists and selling arms to um, like a lot of people that we have deemed incredibly dangerous. And Russia has been talking about getting him freed for months, 
months before Brittany Grinder was arrested. So this is the problem. I don't think that America is being quiet, particularly the Biden administration is being quiet because no one cares about Brittany Griner. Um, thousands of people care about her. Millions of Americans care about her. But I think it's also trying to understand that the way we approach her case, we have to be careful because of the diplomatic situation, but also understanding that in the long term and kind of understanding how the Russian legal system works, America has very little here in terms of negotiations. Russia holds the cards. And so this is what's at stake is Brittany Griner's life. And Putin and the Kremlin are the ones who are ultimately going to decide when and if she'll be released to the United States anytime soon. Hmm. Hmm. So the sentence she's potentially facing is is very, very long. So that I, I should think that the government, our government is not really considering, would not consider like, oh, oh, well, <laughs> we don't. Yeah, we, we, and we have negotiated right in the past with with even more reprehensible people, with actual literal terrorist groups. We've made, you know, we make swaps um, sometimes through back channels, but it, it does happen. So my expectation here would be that, you know, something will be worked out, right, even if it involves, you know, giving the, giving the Russians some high price. Absolutely. And I think this is something to keep in mind. Um, it's kind of like, you know, every movie and every TV series, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that mm-hmm. we aren't being told about. The American public isn't being told about. Um, and we kind of have to trust in that, even though we don't like to. But this is a normal thing in terms of diplomacy and negotiating the release of foreign hostages. And that's the way we can kind of think about Brittany Griner. She is being wrongfully detained. And we've also said Paul Whelan, who's also been in Russian custody for four years, is being wrongfully detained. And he's facing, I think his his sentence is 16 years and he's been sentenced. Trevor Reed was facing a significantly, I think, nine-year sentence and he was released, but he was part of this prisoner exchange, but also he was in bad shape. He was, There are medical reports about him since November 2021 that he was facing tuberculosis and COVID. So we have to kind of keep all these things into play, but with the understanding that I and I would say this, the reason why Brittany Garner was detained isn't just, oh, she broke the law. There are significant things at play here. And what Putin will expect from the United States, a minimum, I would argue, is that they will want the release of Victor Bout. We also have to understand that Brittany Griner's future is tied to the future of the Ukrainian war, because we have been vocal supporters and financial supporters of the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia. And I don't see Russia leaving that part out of their ask for Brittany Griner, possibly Paul Whelan's releases. Yeah, it is kind of incredible that given the stakes here and that this isn't the first time that there isn't more kind of oversight from the WNBA and kind of almost national investment in making sure that American citizens aren't in these these situations, assuming, of course, that this, you know, is a good is a good faith charge and not a plant, drugs being planted on a person, as you said, sometimes happens. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kimberly. Thank you. And we'll have more rising for you after this. We have some election results. Republican Mara Flores has won in a special election in a Texas district, defeating her Democratic opponent. Now, the interesting thing here is this is a district that was blue, that Joe Biden won uh, by a number of points, and that is a, a massive majority Hispanic district. Uh, Flores is uh, uh, actually born in Mexico, I think the first uh, Mexican-born uh, uh, congresswoman. 
And this, and this, now this district has been redrawn, so she's actually going to have to, it's a kind of weird circumstance, she's going to have to run for re-election again, and I think under the new district it's more favorable even so mm. to Democrats, so we'll see. But as a kind of indicator of where things are right now, you know, easily, she's triumphing easily in a... In 13 a, points, I think. Yeah, that went, that went to Biden, um, and, you know, showing the problems that Democrats are going to have and are having with Hispanic voters in particular. Yeah, I mean, both candidates, I believe, in this race were Hispanic, but this really, you know, throws a monkey wrench in the Democratic notion that magically ha being running Hispanic people or is going to get you to win in Hispanic districts or that Hispanic people are naturally always going to align with the Democratic Party. This was the really undersold story, I'm sorry, of the 2020 Democratic primary. But Bernie Sanders' ability to do well with Hispanic voters because certain issues like health care and a minimum wage are such huge drivers. When he won Nevada, in part because the culinary union rank and file flipped, disregarded leadership and said, no, we want to go with Bernie Sanders instead of mm. being, you know, going with a kind of a corporate elite, Democrat elite led leadership. It was a huge sea change and really reflected the fact that if you deliver and you give, uh, you know, provide a, a populist working class platform to people, it doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Latino voters are much more in flux. And I'm not, I haven't been following this race closely, but I'd be really curious to see what kind of messaging was going on down there in Texas and whether or not the Democratic candidate was running on being a Democrat or whether or not he was running on some of these substantive policies that working people really need. Well, so Flores did uh, tout that her husband was a Border Patrol agent. So, you know, no illusions there about she's a Republican and what she thinks about immigration. Democrats have pretended that just kind of scaring Hispanic voters, just saying, well, Republicans are racist and they hate immigrants. That's doing the work. That's enough. Yeah. And it's just, it could not be clearer that that is yeah. That that is not working. Actually, even some some Hispanic uh, voters uh, uh, want stronger immigration policies. Sure. Or they, I mean, they have a range of opinions on the issues. Right. They might want stronger ones than I do. I do. Right. I'm, I'm for immigration, but it's not. It's just not this monolith. It's not the only issue to them. It's not necessarily right. the most important issue, and it's not an issue necessarily where they all agree. So it just it's just a losing strategy to just focus on that and say, oh, that'll be good enough. Yeah. Well, like a lot of stories these days, this one has an Elon Musk tie-in. Mm -hmm. What is that, Robbie? So Elon Musk voted in this election. He lives in this district, and he said that he voted for Flores, the Republican for the first time in his life ever voting for a Republican. Uh, he, he also said on Twitter that he was asked if he'd be voting for a Republican in 2024. He uh, you know, cryptically said TBD, and then he was asked who he liked, and he said DeSantis. Yeah. So, um, is this, this is the beginning of the coveted Elon Musk bump? Is he controlling the airwaves through Twitter and also our political futures? <laughs> I mean, he's just such a... He's, He's the main character that, like, Republican <laughs> or conservative news consumers need now that Trump is kind of exiting the stage as the guy. He's now he's the it's, it's his turn in the spotlight. And he's being he is both be, becoming associated with conservative, uh, uh, the conservative tribe and, and also, I think, deliberately catering it to a, to a great extent. What do you think that's about? What's the chicken and the egg of that here? Do you think, because I've observed this phenomenon, mm -hmm. I've observed it in my personal life, that if you say anything that is at all validating to a conservative worldview, you know, let's they say- you and they- They embrace you, they pull you in. And we saw this with Joe Rogan. Rogan. Absolutely. You know, Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders and Lib said, oh, I hate you, you're a right winger. Right. Joe, you know, 
but the conservatives, he says anything that's at all, whether it's the anti-vax stuff or whatever, that's even remotely aligned with the majority view on the right, and they embrace him and bring him in, and he goes further and further in that direction. Is that what's happened with yep. Elon Musk, or yep. do you think he has real ideological commitments here? I think it is frustratingly and increasingly hard to be not wholly part of one tribe or the other now. We're all kind of pretty accurately sorted. The era of, you know, the conservative Dem who votes for Republicans, sometimes, maybe a Republican president, but mostly votes for Democrats locally, or the opposite, a Republican, but darn it, John Kennedy is handsome on TV, so I'm voting for him. Like, that's over. That doesn't happen. Yeah. You just vote for you vote for your person. It, it's hard to be someone. And I, I, I speak with, you know, some experience as someone with libertarian views that sometimes uh, fit into what liberals think and sometimes fit into what conservatives think. The overriding temptation is just to fully commit to one side or the other and reap the rewards of being part of a team and a yeah. tribe and having uh, having one media environment play defense for you. And, I, you know, he's a... Musk is a very important and wealthy and influential person, and the value of wholly committing to one side or the other is then you do have people coming to your defense. Yeah. Uh, right, right now, the entire conservative media establishment wants to defend and protect uh, Elon Musk, and a lot, you know, a lot of other business figures go the other way. They find the Republican, they don't like the Republican Party, or they don't like some of its values, so they have to be part of the other side. And then you get more committed to, you yeah. know, whatever the, the Democrats are good and Trump is evil and, and that kind of thing. What do you think this means for third party efforts like Andrew Yang's Forward Party? Is there an appetite for that right now? It's certainly, there's an appetite for it. I absolutely think if you just talk to people, the appetite for third parties is is huge. But the structural problems for third parties just cannot be overcome. I wish they could be overcome. I we we need ranked choice voting. We need yeah. proportional uh, kind of electoral and other kinds of things. But but that would involve, you know, the two parties who control our government w would have to concede to structural changes that will that will weaken their death grip. Yeah, there, there was a time when Andrew, Andrew Yang used to tweet and get the kind of enthusiasm, not in the same scale, but that Elon Musk gets. Mm -hmm. There was a similar vibe there. I am a tech guy, a, a kind of finance guy who can speak truth to power, who's outside of the system, who, you know, is surprising in their takes and an innovator, and people really had an appetite for it. I watch his tweets these days and the level of engagement they get and when he talks about the forward party, and I know that Twitter is not a real barometer of the, of the real world, but at least in this space, it feels like something has shifted. And the generalized talk about like, we, we gotta be together and I'm over divisiveness and we have to have proactive solutions, that rhetoric that, that landed for folks in the primary context, in the democratic mm -hmm. primary co context, doesn't seem to be toothy enough for the kind of battles that are happening now on Twitter, but maybe I mean, wrong. We have to, Yang did do a very impressive job of being someone who no one knew who he was, yeah. talking about a, a lot of very specific issues. Just you know, appeared put UBI on the map. Really did. Uh, it really contributed uh, to the conversation. It's you know, it's one thing for a someone who's politically unknown but is generally well known, like a celebrity mm -hmm. or or like Bloomberg coming in or even mm -hmm. Trump, right? And, and and making some kind of impression because they have this basic recognition, and Yang didn't have that at all. No, and he still beat Kamala yeah. in uh, California. <laughs> right. <laughs> or would have. So, but, but you know, look, people, that, that moment might just have passed, and now, you know, we need to, you know, the public's just interest in, in certain people wanes, and maybe it needs to be somebody else, but 
But in any case, the structural issues are just so high. This is what I talk to people about when I, I I'm a third party voter. I, I wish third parties would, uh, would, would do better. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just because it's really an uniquely American problem because of the structure just does not allow it to happen. And I wish, I wish it was different. I, I think other countries, a lot of European countries that seem to have somewhat healthier political uh, uh, situations or political conversations have many parties, have yeah. not just two, but many parties. And then when one party goes insane, the rest gang up on them. And you have these kind of coalitions that, are, uh, that, that seem healthier. Uh, yeah, well, I talk about this a lot with people who listen to my show and my call-in show. There's a lot of frustration on the left with electoralism, generally speaking. Yeah. And sometimes I do candidate interviews, and most folks are over it because they don't see any hope of populist, progressive populism getting any breathing room within the Democratic Party. They see Democrats turning on progressives harder than they will turn against Republicans or the you know so-called moderates like uh, Kristen Sinema and, and Joe Manchin, and they don't want to see leftists running within the Democratic Party. Now, they do sometimes say, I would love a candidate, and this was a discussion around Bernie 2020, I would love a candidate to run within the Democratic Party, take advantage of the system and avoid some of those structural barriers and then do a dirty break once they're elected. Mm -hmm. um, people, a lot of people wanted Bernie Sanders to run third party at the end of the Democratic primary. I don't think that was ever in his like DNA. But there are a candidate I endorsed, uh, I, sorry, I uh, interviewed recently, Michaela Wilkes, said that she was open to that. She's running against Denny Hoyer in Maryland's fifth. And my audience was very receptive to that idea. So I'd be curious to see whether there are more candidates that might say, I'm going to run as a Democrat, I'm going to run as a Republican, and then I'm going to break for the forward party if the party does me wrong, if the party, the two-party infrastructure does well, me and, wrong. And it needs to start at the local level, the smaller level. Like you can't, you're not going to suddenly have a, a third-party presidential candidate, you know, do anything remotely impressive, but you could you know, I, Elon Musk could run, could run in that district as a Don't forward party him. candidate, I'm just saying, <laughs> and he would he might very well win. And then you have to build something yeah. from that. But uh, yeah. in the, the in the uh, you know general presidential, no luck there. Yeah. If Elon can change our election law, he'll get some That'd kind words They are me. bad. <laughs> well, we'll have more rising right after this. A recording from Hunter Biden's laptop recovered by the Washington Examiner shows the president's son boasting over his influence over the elder Biden. Let's listen. He'll talk about um, anything that I want him to, that he believes in. If I say this is important to me, then he will work a way in which to make it a part of his, of his platform. My dad respects me more than he respects anyone in the world, and I know that to be certain. So it is not going to be about whether my dad thinks it's going to affect his politics. It, no, it won't. It's not going to be whether or not he's going to be embarrassed of me. He never will. Mm. It's not going to. I'm, all of those concerns that you have with all of the people that you know, mm. that are in the, that are the children of, mm. I have none of them. Mm. Not. A... Oh, he speaks so eloquently about his ability to dictate his father, the president of the United States, policy preferences. Why would you record yourself ever <laughs> talking about anything? If you don't have a podcast, that's a that's a great. <laughs> do you have a Spotify point. deal? No. Then, then don't why do are it. you then don't why do are it. record? Look, the idea that a parent is influenced by their child or that cares about their child's opinion is not the craziest thing. Their adult child. It's not the craziest thing. We talk about Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan and the the hand behind the crown and the wife behind the voice and all of these kinds of things mm -hmm. in a million contexts. That's not what's so outrageous. What's so outrageous is that we know who Hunter Biden is. We know that he has 
led a somewhat troubled life, and there are the, this ties into the broader concerns about what was going on in Ukraine, self-dealing of those kinds of things. You know, learning about also from the hard drive that apparently he spent more than $200,000 a month from October 2017 through February 2018 on luxury hotel rooms, Porsche payments, dental work, and cash withdrawals doesn't look good and just continues to raise well, do we know, speculation. Do we know who he was talking to there? Because the other thing, you have to be a little careful or a little credulous because, you know, he can be overstating his influence sure. for, you know, for whatever advantage. For whatever advantage. I mean, that is not the question. Like, yeah. he at least is under the impression that he can somehow yeah. get traction or get credibility right. or he get is, something he from is whoever bought he's talking sold. to. There's no real question. Hunter Biden yeah. is bought and sold. Hunter Biden is one is peddling influence on behalf of, you know, other governments or companies or potentially nefarious things like that's pretty established. Now, just because he says he can peddle influence doesn't necessarily mean he actually sure. can. But who knows? <laughs> Maybe you know, he can. It's, it's not a good look, as the kids say. No. Yeah, it's, it's not good. Um, and, and also, you know, look, Joe Biden, especially at this stage in his life at the, of so many years, does not seem like he doesn't come across as if he he has, you know, very extremely rigidly defined views and policies and, and is not susceptible to persuasion. Right. He comes a little bit across like I mean, he says things all the time to the effect of, well, they, they tell me I have to exit the stage now. He, he gives the impression <laughs> that he's an old guy who's like doing what he's told by more informed handlers. That's the impression he gives people. Kind of. Although I do say, I do think that when he says that, that's that's actually so Biden doing nod. what he wants. Because what Biden will do is he he's just wants clearly to get out being told, don't say this. But what Biden will do is say, I'm not supposed to say this, but have you seen how many biracial TV commercials there are? <laughs> like, he, he will right. say what he wants to say. He cannot be stopped. He's just going to do a little caveat beforehand. So many biracial TV commercials. <laughs> We're saved. <laughs> We're saved. Everything's fine. Don't worry about the gas prices. It's the biracial TV commercials. Look, maybe he'll tune into Rising so he can get a little eyeful of it. Apparently, he likes. Biracial TV hosting going on. <laughs> Amazing, all the progress we've made. But you know, my point being, he doesn't. He, if you wanted to give the impression that no, you're never going to listen to your idiot son's ridiculous pitch to give money or do whatever. Yeah. You would not behave the way he behaves, regardless of whether it's true that he yeah. has any is whatever susceptible level to Hunter Biden. Maybe he's not susceptible at all, but he does not. He's, his presence does not suggest that. Yeah. I will say this. When Trump was in office, there was a frustration among liberals that no matter how many stories about his family or his past and self-dealing came down the transom, it didn't seem to affect his popularity. It, it didn't really capture the national interest. And Democrats really lamented this. Nothing will stick. It's, they were very frustrated by it. It does seem to be the case that we live in such an ethical morass <laughs> throughout <laughs> all of politics that stories like this, apart from some chatter on the right and you know contributing to the generalized frustration with Joe Biden, I don't think are moving anybody's needle and don't no, really that's matter. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so, I mean, equality. If, right. <laughs> spare me. Spare me if you're like, oh yeah, I'm just I'm a one issue voter. My my voter is nepotism, <laughs> and I, I just I can't stand the nepotism going on. And so Trump's my guy. Yeah, yeah. We'll okay. get some single-issue voter that, uh, under gonna... Biden's face. 
Yeah, I'm not going to take <laughs> that made. very seriously. In, yeah, in fact, if what you were concerned about is, is was nepotism in the 2020 election, man, you did not have a you did not have good options. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, you were probably a, a third party voter. You were staying at home. So. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to see. And I don't know that, right, Hunter Biden stuff can become a, a sideshow many times because how important is it really? And, and yes, the, the Trump's family stuff is just overwhelmingly uh, 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 embarrassing in many of the same ways, if not much more. Yeah. But it's still, you know, it's still interesting. And it's, it's what motivates a lot of Republicans. So we're going to keep hearing about it, even though, you know, I think your general voters who are maybe going to vote Republican for the first time or are coming back to the party after Trump or whatever are right. They're not. It's not because of Hunter Biden. It's because of the gas prices and other yeah. things like that. I'd be interested to see if someone could enter into politics and be a kind of moral voice. You know, there was this moment where we thought maybe Mitt Romney was going to be an ethical Republican because of his Mormon upbringing. There are these moments where you think, oh, you know, is someone like Marianne Williamson going to enter the fray and become a spiritual leader and talk to those parts of American society that have been really kind of underserved by politics recently and make people feel like there is a country to come back together to? I still do think if there is an outsider who gains traction in this country, it might be on that basis, not some techno corporate type, but somebody who can who can satisfy what I do think is a sincere desire not to have to be in the muck all the time. Well, the name I'm about to suggest does not satisfy any of the criteria you just <laughs> laid out whatsoever, but I, it's kind of tangentially related. I, I learned this. Um, just uh, maybe this morning while I was getting ready, uh, I, I didn't. I suspected this, but didn't quite know that Ron DeSantis is not a, as far as political candidates go, is not particularly wealthy. Mm-hmm. He has student loan debt. I did uh, see that. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't come from this very wealthy dynasty type scenario. So it, it's a kind of, and, and obviously Biden didn't either when he started out, but he's been right. In you know, he you, talks uh, you about end not your able time. To medical bills for his son. True. Barack Obama, I believe, didn't pay off his student loans until he became a senator and his book started to sell at that point, And then yeah. he was able to use the proceeds. Hey, let's get them all on the show and talk about why we should cancel their student debt. I'm all, I'm on board. <laughs> We're going to cancel Ron DeSantis. <laughs> cancel Ron DeSantis. I know you, I know you'd be willing to do it 100%. in order to get it done. And we'll ta- if he gets rich, we'll tax him on the back end and make it, make it up. All right. Sounds like a plan. Well, tomorrow on Rising, the FDA is weighing in on whether or not to give COVID vaccines vaccines to babies and young kids. We'll discuss that with experts on the issue. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts in podcast form. Yeah, so check that out. And we will, of course, be back uh, tomorrow, which I just said, and I'm repeating again. Uh, <laughs> we were just so excited to be back, Robbie. <laughs> we missed you. It's been a long time. I, it was fun being back. I, I had a fun time at this conference. Met a lot of fans of our show, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People came up to me, said they watch and listen to Rising, which is always nice to hear. It's always nice to hear. We appreciate you all. and we They like you too, Brianna. I'm sure some of them do. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm sure I could go to some conference that maybe you're a part of where we'd, we'd have a mixed uh, reception on Robbie. But uh, uh, Look... I love all of the audiences. They challenge us and they make us better. That's right. That's a good way to think about it. We'll be back with you all tomorrow. Take care.